0: You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit CrossingParagold.com. So, despite the fact that I married an English teacher, it wasn't until 2016 that I read my very first fiction novel. My wife didn't believe that, by the way. She's like, how could you have gone through school and never read a fiction novel? And then she met my English teachers and they they were like, uh, trust me, he'd never read a fiction. he never read any books in high school. And so um, so it's just God's humor that I ended up pairing up with an English teacher. Anyways, 2016, I read my very first fiction novel. It was a book that was actually entitled The Book of Strange New Things. Anybody in here ever read it? Didn't think so. Um, In short, it is a story about an English missionary who leaves planet Earth, goes to a new planet in order to evangelize some aliens. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, feels like a good book, a fiction book for a a pastor. And so, anyways, he's going to evangelize a group of aliens. uh, They're called the Oatians. And what he learns really, really quick is that uh, they cannot comprehend the Scriptures. They're really struggling with the Bible. And so uh, they don't understand, for example, they've never had sheep. And so they're like, I have no idea. What do you mean a shepherd? Jesus is a shepherd. So he's like, I got an idea. So he goes, he cuts, he edits the Bible, he takes out all the parts that they have a really hard time understanding. And he comes back and thinks they're going to be really, really happy that he has kind of this newly translated Bible for them. And the aliens are ticked. They rebuke him and they're like, whoa, 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 don't, don't do this. Like you're going to flatten the story. Like, like you're you're going to take the power out of the story. Like, like we don't want you to give us the Bible the way you think we need to hear it. We want it the way God thinks we need it. To hear it. We want the Bible as it is, even in all of its strange new thingness. And as I've reflected on that story in a lot of this series, my prayer has been that every single person in this room would have the exact same attitude. That the same would be true of us, that we would be a people who, like the Oasis, would say, you know what? No matter, like, how difficult this is, no matter how hard it can be at times to read, uh, no matter what preconceived ideas I already have about God, no matter if this thing like pushes up and kind of messes with my political beliefs or pocketbook or how I handle conflict or whatever it may be that, that even if this makes me uncomfortable though I may be tempted at times to, to kind of pick and choose the parts that I really want to believe and follow at the end of the day, my hope is that we will be a people that says, you know what I will not settle for an edited version of this. I will not settle for a counterfeit version of of the story of God. I want to know who is God really. I want to know like who God is. I want to know exactly what he has done and how that shapes who I am and how I am called to live. And not just here on a Sunday, but in the everyday. My prayers that that would be our attitude. And the reason I've been praying that even this morning is because I don't think for the majority of Christians that is a reality. As we talked about last week, uh, many of uh, Americans who claim to be Christians have a real problem with the Bible. And that problem is that uh, the majority of Americans, even those who claim to be Christians, don't read this Bible for themselves on a regular and consistent basis. And so we'll show up on a Sunday, and well done, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, I mean that. Like we'll show up and we will listen to someone preach about the Bible. We'll maybe listen to a sermon on a podcast about the Bible. We'll read a book that quotes the Bible. But few of us actually read this for ourselves thoughtfully and prayerfully. And I know why that is. Like like part of it is because this is a really dense book. It's actually not even a book. Did you know that? It's a library. It's a collection of books that was all just kind of put together in one thing like this. And so this is really dense. It's got 66 different books. It's written by different authors and different genres. There are historical accounts, and there's poetry, and there's there's all kinds. There's epistles, there's letters, there's teaching, there's parables. I mean, it's written in different genres and different languages that many of us don't even speak today. On top of that, you've got some really weird stuff in here, like a talking snake on page 3 of the Bible. I was just talking to a guy in the parking lot right after this. It's like, is that like did that really happen? Like did a snake really talk? Or is it like, is that just a metaphor? Like what's happening here? And then you just added that to the fact that we're very, very busy people. Right? We've got a lot going on. We have little to no margin in our lives all the time we run errands and take our kids to sports and do school and homework and and everything else that we got going on. And of course we've got to catch up on the brand new show on Netflix. That's a must-watch TV or whatever. And so it's like like we, we just man, we just don't have time To sit here. And, I mean, as as psychologists are now pointing out, our brains are being rewired by social media to where unless it's like a soundbite or a tweet or like images we can scroll through, it's very hard for things to keep our attention. So we got a lot that is stacked up against us. Fewer and fewer Americans are actually reading this Bible for themselves. And here's why this matters so much. If you do not understand God's story you will never be able to make sense of your story. I just want to stop and ask you real quick, do you believe that? It's a bold statement. But I truly believe it. If you do not understand God's story, you will not make sense of your story. You will not understand why you're here. You will not live well. You will not suffer well, and you will not die well. I was talking to my wife last night about the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians, where he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But you to think about that. Paul was one of the most frustrating frustrating people on the planet, especially to, a, to, a, to an enemy of the gospel. I mean, they would come to Paul, and they would say, Paul, if you don't stop preaching the gospel, we're going to kill you. And he'd say, hey, to die is gain. Who says that? Okay, well we'll just let you live. To live is Christ. Okay, Paul, well then here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna stone you. We're gonna, we're gonna make you suffer. We're gonna drag you to a beach and, and we're gonna beat you and we're gonna leave you there. And what does Paul say in Romans 8? I consider the sufferings of this present world aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's gonna be revealed. Which beach do you guys wanna go to? I mean, most of us would say, like, that's a level of resilience and freedom that we know little to nothing about. And if we're ever going to get there, if we're ever going to have this kind of confidence and this kind of contentment, if we're ever going to experience in the words of Jesus the life that is truly life, we have to understand this story as it really is. And so over the next six weeks, our hope is to help you see the story as it really is. And today, we're going to start where all good stories start in the beginning. Okay. So if you have your Bible, look back with me, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, here's what you're going to see in Genesis 1, okay? And I'll put this on the screen for you. This is going to be really dense today. I'm just going to warn you, it's going to feel teachy. Try to stay with me, okay? Here's what you're going to see in Genesis chapter 1, that according to Dave Lomas, and I agree with this, Genesis 1 is telling a different kind of story that is answering a different kind of question that is ultimately calling us into a different way to live. Okay, you see it there on the screen? Now I want you to be able to explain this to other people. Like as I'm, as I'm telling you this today, try to think of how I would turn around and teach this to someone else later this week. Genesis 1 is telling a different kind of story that is answering a different kind of question. It's inviting us into a different way to live. So let's start with the first part. Genesis is telling a different kind of story. So you may not know this, but Genesis 1 is not the very first creation story. There were actually, by the time Genesis 1 came out and was being told, there were other creation stories that were circling communities. There were other creation stories that were being told. And most of these stories, if not all of them, were basically saying that the reason we're here is by one big accident that happened as a result of a war between gods. And so one of the most popular stories in this time, go and Google this for yourself later. It would be a lot of fun for you to read this. It's called the Enuma Elish. And what they would teach is basically, the Babylonians would teach is that the reason the earth got here is because we have this, this war that broke out between these gods. They sort of chopping each other to pieces and the earth was created by amputated limbs from these gods. And then they didn't say that Marduk, who was kind of the winner of this war, he was left in charge of the earth. And what he thought is basically what I'll do is I will make the human race my slaves and they'll do all of my dirty work. All the stuff I don't want to do, I'll have them do it for me. Now, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? And yet, think about this, that was the common type of story you would have heard when Genesis 1 began to gain some traction. And so, this is a very different kind of story. And it's a different kind of story because, according to Genesis chapter 1, the world is here because a really good God, with great intentionality, decided to create a really good world. And how do we know it was a good world? Because read Genesis 1 for yourself, and you'll see it all through there. God declares it such. In verse 4, he creates light, then he says it is good. In verse 10, he creates the land and the seas, and he says it is good. Verse 12, he creates plants and vegetation, and says it is good. Verse 18, he creates the sun and the moon, and says it's good. In verse 21, sea creatures, he says, and birds, it is good. In verse 25, the livestock, he says it is good. And then in verse 31, at the climax of his creation, he creates humans in his image, and he says this is really Good. Now, when God says it is good, don't think of an inspector. I work at Allen Engineering a few hours a week. I'm a chaplain there for their company. They have these quality inspectors where after uh, something is built, they're, they're, they, they manufacture concrete equipment. So after a router is built or a wall behind trowel or whatever it may be, uh, some sort of buggy, uh, they'll have these inspectors looking over really good. It's Alton. Al- Al- you used to do that, didn't you? You're the very back Alton, so we have a real life uh, former Art Allen engineering, cha- uh, not chaplain, that's me, uh, inspector in the building today. So, anyways, you can check me on this. Um, but they would look over everything, the hydraulic system, the, the whatever else it's made out of. I have no idea, actually. But they would say, okay, everything checks out, so this is good. It can now be sent out, and it can function as it was designed to function. When we read Genesis 1, we think that's what's happening. But that's not what's happening. When God says it is good, don't think of, of him inspecting his creation, but rather he's delighting in his creation. He's rejoicing in his creation. Some would say Genesis 1 is him singing over his creation. So when God is declaring it is good, it's really important you get this. Don't think of a a mechanic who's inspecting a machine. Think rather about an artist who is enjoying his new song. Think about a baker who after a lot of work of putting this together is delighting in this delicious cake. That's what's happening right here in Genesis 1. So, so when God creates, according to this account, God doesn't just create the world useful, He creates it beautiful and enjoyable and desirable. And guys, that tells us a lot about creation, but it tells us even more about our Creator. And here's, according to this Bible, what it tells us about our Creator. God, despite what some of you have heard, especially if you grew up in church, God is not a celestial killjoy. God is not this God that's like, hmm, what seems fun? Don't do that. Let me give you another commandment or another law. Like, that's not the God of the Bible. The God that we see here in Genesis 1 is the God who creates taste buds to enjoy food. Don't let that be lost on you. Again, we don't have to have taste buds, but God chose to create us with taste buds. Rather than being like cars that are just like fueled up with gasoline or like cows that only eat grass. He gives us all these different delicious foods and ways to feel the texture and and the taste of different aspects of that food. It's amazing. When we eat food, like when's the last time you just like stopped and worshiped God? It's like, God, thank you so much that we have pizza. Thank you so much that we have tacos or, or my wife last night for her birthday, we, we had tiramisu cake from Avanzari, and then also had chocolate pecan pie that her grandma made. Like, thank you God so much for this. That's our God. Our God also, he, he creates this thing called sex that is to take place in the boundaries of marriage between one man and, and one woman. And notice like God, he doesn't just create sex for procreation. He creates it also for pleasure. He didn't have to do that. Do you realize sex was not the devil's idea? Like, it was God's idea. Like, that is, in his mind, he thought that up and said, this is the way I want to do things. I was on my walk earlier today, and, and, and I saw the sunrise. I mean, God did that. Look at this beautiful magnolia tree in our yard. It's my favorite tree. It's a magnolia tree. It's gorgeous. Like, God did that. That is our creator. Our God is an eternal source of everything that is good and beautiful and true. And from out of that source, he begins to create. So this is a very different kind of story than all the other stories that were being told during this time period. But not only is this a different kind of story, it's also a different kind of story that answers a different question. Now, when we read the book of Genesis, oftentimes, or when we talk about creation, people ask the question... How? You ever asked that before? How did God create the world? And how long did it take for Him to create the world? Was it a literal six days? Or was there a gap between day one and, and day two? And, 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 and there's a problem with approaching the Bible this way. See, a lot of times we want to read Genesis 1 as a science book. But Genesis 1 is not a science book. It's not the kind of literature that this is at all. Genesis 1 is not here primarily to tell you the story of how God created the world, but rather when you read this, what you begin to realize is here to tell you why God created the world. And the why, by the way, is always more compelling than the how. You always need to figure out the why before you focus on the how and the what and all of that. And so here's what I want you to do. let's, Let's kind of do this together, class. Let's use our imaginations this morning, okay? Can you do that? Everybody put on your imagination hat. Some of you already got a hat on. Very well. Well done. Okay. Everybody good? Thumbs up? Ready? We're good? Okay. All right. So here's what I want you to do. This is not going to be easy for some of you. Um imagine for a moment that you are God. You're all powerful. You're all knowing. You lack nothing. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want. Now, here's the question. Don't answer this out loud. You're God, right? Now here's the question. If you were God, would you create a world? No right or wrong answer. I'm just, just want you to think about that for a second. Would you create a world? Would you create a universe? And if so. Why would you do it? Would you do it because you get lonely? Would you do it because you were bored? Would you do it because you just want to have some slaves do stuff for you that you don't want to do? It's a really profound question if you stop and think about it. Like, why did God create the world? We're here and we're just like, oh, He created the world, but why? Why did God create it? Somebody asked you that on the street. Why did God create the world? What would you do? Say, why did God create the world? And in order for us to know why God created the world, I think we need to know what he was doing before he created the world. And I don't I wasn't there, and you weren't there, but fortunately Jesus was there. And Jesus peels back the curtain in John seventeen and he tells us why or what God was doing before he created the world. And I want you to look at this. Maybe some of you have never read this before. John seventeen twenty four, I think I can put it on the screen for you. What was God doing before He created the world? John seventeen twenty four. This is Jesus' high priest who prays His Father. I desire they, talking about the disciples, whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because, look at this, what was God doing before the creation of the world? Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you realize long before God was known as creator or before He was known as ruler, He was known by Jesus as Father? And before God the Father ever created the world, what was he doing? Jesus says he was loving the Son. What was God doing? Think about this, guys. From eternity past. That's a long time. What was he doing? He was pouring out his love through the Spirit onto Jesus. So here you have the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, and just for eternity past, this love triangle. And, and we get really kind of a glimpse of what this looks like. It, it, this is hard to wrap our minds around, right? Like, this is not easy to think about. But, like, we get a good picture of this in Matthew chapter 3. We talked about this two weeks ago. When Jesus goes to get baptized by John to identify with sinful humanity, he comes out of the water. And it says the Holy Spirit ascends on Jesus like a dove, hovers above him. And then the Father's there. And what does the Father do? As the Spirit comes and ascends on him. After the Spirit comes into sin, what does Jesus hear from the Father? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, okay, you say, okay, Great what in the world does this have to do with creation? Everything. Because just as we see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit at baptism, we see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit here in Genesis chapter 1. And they're doing the same thing. In verse 1, we see the Father. In verse 2, we see the Spirit hovering, think about this, above the waters like a dove. It's literally, by the way, what it means in there when it says that the Spirit was over the surface of the deep. It's talking about like a dove. see the Father, you see the Spirit, and you see the Son in verse 3 through verse following. Okay, how in the world do we see the Spirit here in verse 3 and verse following? Well, think about this. You can answer this out loud. How did God create the world, we do see some, some insight in how he created it and how did God create When he wanted something to, to come about, what did he do? He would speak. So that's weird. You ever thought about that? Like, what a weird story. He spoke it into existence. Yes. Interesting. So that should cause us to stop and ask a question if we're reading this for the first time. What is it that made God's word so powerful? Right? He says, let there be light and there's light. I can't do that. Let there be stars, now there's stars. He speaks, Let's let there be land and plants and animals, and it happens. So what is it about God's Word that makes it so powerful? Why does God's Word have so much creative energy and potential behind it? And, and, and this is, I think, really profound. This is something that, that I learned through the help of, of Pastor uh, Tim Keller. The reason God's Word is powerful is because God's Word is a person. John chapter 1, I'll put it on the screen for you. Whenever you become a Christian, people tell you to read the gospel of John first. In John chapter 1, verse 1, here's the way this gospel opens up. In the beginning. Does that sound familiar to anybody in here? It's the exact same opening to Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1. That's intentional, by the way the Holy Spirit inspiring John to open this way to say, pay attention. Hey, pay attention. Something new is happening here. New life is bursting forth. In the beginning, look at this, was the Word capital W. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Who are they talking about? Class? Class? Jesus, very good. Anytime I ask a question, 99.9% of the time, it's going to be Jesus is going to be the answer. Verse 3, through Him. Through who? Through the Word, through Jesus. All things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And then the Word, verse 14, became flesh. Talking about when Jesus became a baby. And made His will among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so right here, right here we see in Genesis 1, we have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Spirit. And, and, hear, and please hear this. It is out of, listen, hear this. It is out of an overflow of this eternal, unstoppable love that the Trinity has for each other, that God has for the other, that this world is created. So why are we here? Why did the triune God make the universe? It's not because He needed you. God did not make the world because He was lonely. He made the world because, it says in 1 John 4, 8, He is love. And from out of this eternal, unstoppable love from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, He could not not create the world. This world was born in love. And that leads me to my third and final point. This is a different story that answers a different question that therefore has invited us into a different way to live. If you look down at Genesis one verse twenty six, God said, "Let us make man in our image." All right, who is the us? That's singular, and that's good, by the way. That was the point one percent where it wasn't Jesus completely. It's partly, it's partly Jesus. Who's us? Jesus is a, it would be an I. That's right. Jesus is there, but it's also the Father and the Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Trinity is right there. We're made in the image of this triune God, which means, guys, if we are made in the image of this triune God, we are made from love and we are made for love. We are made to receive God's love and we're made to be a conduit of that love back to God and into the lives of others. And this is why in Matthew 22, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? How can you sum up the whole Bible, the whole law? What did Jesus say? Remember? He said, here it is right here. Here's the whole point of your existence. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it right there. You want to know, hey, why do I exist? That's it. My daughter asked me this week, by the way. She said, Dad, why, why am I here? This is like 9 o'clock at night, by the way. Like after the first night of school, I'm like, oh, why are we having this conversation right now? Shouldn't have sent my kid to public school. It's like they're questioning, the, you know. And so, why am I here? And, and I told her, I was like, you're here to love. You're here to receive love and give love. And she's like, yeah, I, yeah, I know. But like, like really, like, like, really, what am I here? Like, what's not the pastor answer? You know? And I was like, that's it. Like, you learn to love God and you love others. Everything else is going to work itself out. We are here, Jesus said, to love God first and secondly to love our neighbor as ourselves." Now here's a question for you. Who is our neighbor? Because this is a command. Who is our neighbor? Does anybody know who is our neighbor? Who is Jesus talking about here? Everyone. Anyone who we come into contact with that we have an opportunity to share God's love with. And here's what that means. Please hear me cross in church. That even means people who aren't like you. That even means people who have a different political agenda than you do. That even means people who are different color, or they're in a different stage of life. People who make you uncomfortable, people who don't necessarily maximize your life. Jesus, his teaching on enemy love is one of the most radical teachings. It is, I think, the most radical teaching still to this day. Jesus calls us to love even our enemies. By the way, like guys. And I heard someone say this recently. They said that's a, that's a liberal agenda that Jesus tells us to love. Our, it's the Bible. There's nothing about this that's liberal or progressive or whatever. Like, this is basic Christianity. We are called to love our enemies, even those who persecute us. That is a direct quote from Jesus himself. And why would God ever command us to do something like that? Why would God ever command you to love even your enemies with a sacrificial, self-giving, unconditional love? because that's exactly the kind of love that He's first shown to you. You realize the Bible said that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. In John 3.16, it says that "That God so loved the world that He created, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And, And guys, please hear me. You will never, ever be able to love people the way that you're supposed to unless the love of God first settles down into your heart. Like, there is no other way. Like there is no other way other than this. Like the gospel has to move from being just something we believe in here to something that we've experienced fully in here. And it is only whenever that gospel truth that God, while we were still his enemies, gave us his very best by giving us his son to die for us, to forgive us for our sins, and and to pursue us, even though we continue to turn away over and over and over again, it's only when we begin to feel that and to experience that in a real and tangible way that we can, in return, truly love God and love others, and not from a place of duty, but from a place of delight. There's a big difference between doing the right thing because you feel obligated to do it and doing it because you've been so affected by the gospel you want to do it. And that is my heart for us as a church, man, that we wouldn't like serve in the nursery or or serve in different ministries here or go and serve in the community or love on the poor or whatever because like that's the right thing to do. But we would do that because we've been so radically transformed by the love of this triune of God. And guys, listen, I know this isn't easy. It is not easy to put God first. It is not. It's not easy for me to put God first. I mean, every day there are moments where I'm telling you, I put Jared before I put God. It's not easy to love others. I'll I'll be honest with you. I'll be transparent. It's not even easy for me to always love my wife and kids. Just being completely honest with you. I mean, I had, I got in arguments with my kids several times this past week, and I remember on Wednesday morning, it was my time, I had to take all three kids to school, because they had to be there at 7.15, and we were all wrestling around and trying to get them out the door. Is anybody else, like, for anybody else, like, is it hard to get your kids to school, or is it just me? Anybody else? Show, raise your hand. Anybody? Okay, I'm not alone. I'm trying to get my kids out the door, and we're, they're like, they're yelling at each other, and I'm yelling at them to stop yelling, you know, and like... And on the, on the way, I'm just like, can't we just all get along, guys? Like, and we, we, we try so hard, but then, like, the next day, we're back to maybe fighting again with one another. I mean, it's just like, it's not hard for me to love my own children who are the flesh of my flesh, much less love you, who are not. And yet, this is the call. This is what it means to image God, to love Him and to love others the way He's loved us. And so how do we do this? On a practical level, how do we do this? Well, first off, I'll say this, and I'll be very quick. If we are going to become a people of love, which is what I believe we've been created to do, and that's why Paul says if you don't have love, it doesn't matter what else you have, you have nothing. If we're going to truly become a people of love, the first thing, and please take them up and say, seriously, this is not just me talking to hear myself today. The first thing we need to do is we have to be a people. If we're going to be a people of love, we have to be a people who practice the presence of God. We have to get beyond this, church. Listen, we have to get beyond this, 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 type of, um, this type of view of Christianity where we basically think that all God wants us to do is just talk about Him with other people. We've got to move beyond just talking about God or just thinking thoughts about God to actually sitting in the presence of God and absorbing his love that is constantly being poured out for us. In John 15:6, Jesus said, "I am the vine and you are the branches." Yeah. Think about that. Jesus is God. I am the vine, you're the branches. If you'll abide in me, you will bear much fruit. That's talking about the fruit of love, and joy, and peace, and, and patience, and so on. So how does the branch, according to Jesus, bear fruit? How do you become a more loving person? It is not by sitting there and, and listening to a sermon and saying, okay, I'm going to become more loving today. I'm going to try harder to be better. That's not how you do it. According to Jesus, it says you just abide in the vine. You abide in the loving presence of God. And guys, that is so mysterious that I know some of you don't even believe it right now. But that is goal number one as a disciple of Jesus. It is to learn to sit in the loving presence of God and know that as you do that, like a vine through branches, his loving, living sap will flow through you and out of you. And in some ways, this is really easy. But in other ways, this is really difficult. I took this picture yesterday. This is a picture of my dog. I think we can put it up there. This is Ranger. Still going strong. Thank you for your prayers last fall. Uh... And you can see my foot. This is what he does every morning when I'm in my rocking chair with my coffee. He comes and he lays on my foot. He wants to be in contact with me as much as possible. He just wants to feel my love in a real and tangible way. And in one way, you look at that, it's like, it's so easy. All he has to do is just lay there. And if he just lays there, he's going to experience my love. But in another way, it's really difficult. You know why? Because we have squirrels in our front yard. and rabbits and and just complete strangers that at times walk through our yard as well and cars driving by and buses and there's a lot going on and for a dog especially it's very easy to want to probably jump up and go chase after some of that stuff but over time he's trained himself to just sit yeah. and to just stay connected yeah. and if he does that he knows he's good That's the Christian life in one picture. That's what God is calling us to do. And on the one hand, all you have to do today, guys, is just relax. Chill out. Just chill out. Stop trying to earn God's love. Stop trying to fight for His love. Stop trying to prove that you're worthy of love. Just stay connected to His love. He's loving you right now. Just connect. Just just become aware of it. In one way, it's really, really easy to just rest. In another way, it's really difficult because in a world of distraction and look over here and hurry over there like this takes a little bit of discipline. But over time, if you'll stay with it, I'm telling you guys, God's love will slowly but surely transform you more and more into a person of love. So practice the presence of God. And secondly and finally, if you want to become one more, and more a person of love, not only you just need to practice the presence of God, but you need to plug into a mission community. Which I know, I know, sounds like a shameless plug. Okay, right, like, so right. here we go, it's the missional community I like, can like, bring in, bam, that's how they get you, right? It's the love of God, and it's like, hey, have you thought about getting involved in the missional community lately? Um, I get that Some of you, I know you view missional communities like my kids view their vegetables You know? It's like, try that before, sucks, Not, gonna, it stinks, sorry kids uh, Not going to do that again And so it's just like, I'm, I ain't doing that Tried that, didn't work. Don't even think it's really that good for me. So I don't care what the back of the label says. I don't care what the expert says. Like, give me the donut, you know. Um, I know that's the way some of you are when it comes to missional communities. I get it. Like, there are sometimes I believe uh, that, you know, I don't need missional community either. But here's the thing. According to the Bible, and I, I could talk about this, and I have. I've, I've preached many sermons on this. won't go into detail. Your soul, I promise you, needs community more than our bodies need vegetables. By a long shot. Here's an interesting thought. Um, Here's an interesting thought. Genesis chapter 1. You have. God creates the world. And everything is good. Everything is good. Right? We just saw saw that. He's listing all these things out. This is good. 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 But then we come to the end of Genesis 1 and we find one thing that is not good and what is it? What's that? Loneliness. God comes and he finds Adam and he says, Adam is alone. This is not good. And so he creates for Adam a wife. And then he says to them, now be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with a community. Now, here's what I want you to realize. Even if, think about this. This will mess with you a little bit. and We're almost done. Even if you were sitting in paradise and it was just you and God and that was it it still wouldn't be enough for you. Because here in Genesis 1, before sin ever entered the picture, God said it wasn't enough for Adam. I don't care if you're an introvert or or what you are on the Myers-Briggs or whatever. To be created in the image of God means you were created by relationships and for relationships. The way that we image God is in community. And we'll talk about this more in a few weeks to come. According to the New Testament, one of the greatest communities, one of the greatest places where we learn to experience God's love in a real, tangible way is through the church. By God's design, the church, it says, is the body of Christ. It's where we experience the intimacy of Jesus in a real and tangible way. And so if you want to experience the love of God, you must first practice the presence of God, but secondly, you must plug into a community. And by the way, now is a great time to do that because we are starting the story of God. So for the next six weeks, we are, this is a plug, by the way. You're going to be going through the story of God with your missional community. And here's what I would say. Um, give it six weeks. If you don't like it six weeks, you can return it, okay? And so give it six weeks. Go. You'll have a meal. Uh, and then you will just dive into the Scripture. And you'll learn kind of what the, what the Bible has been saying just through from Genesis to Revelation. In six weeks, you'll be able to at least understand that. And the cool thing about that is, by the way, if you're not a Christian, you're also invited to that. Someone asked me about that before. Like, if I'm, if I'm not a Christian... Especially if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to go. Because then at least, guess what? You'll know what you're walking away from. I talked with a guy this past week. It's like, ah, Christianity. And he was just like going off on it. And I was like, tell me, what do you think Christianity is? And he's like, it's basically like being a decent person and trying to do the right stuff. And then you go to heaven. And I'm like, oh, no wonder you think it's terrible. Like, that's not it at all. He just totally doesn't know. So if you're not a Christian, go. Sit through this. Learn what the story of God really is so you can decide what it is you're going to walk away from. All that being said, I'm going to about the band back up. My hope this morning is just this, guys, and we're done. My hope is that you will encounter the loving presence of the triune God. A.W. Tozer says this, Most of those who call themselves Christians have substituted theological ideas for an arresting encounter. They are full of religious notions, but in their heart there is no one there. I wonder today, is that true of you? Is it true of you that you have all the right ideas about God, but you have never really fully encountered the loving presence of God? And if so, here's the good news, guys. God is here. God is not going to play hide-and-seek with you. God is not going to invite you to just try harder to be better. But, But if you're here today and you feel God is distant, if you feel like He's you know, if you feel cold towards Him, if you feel like, I, I don't, I don't, I've never experienced God's love in a real intangible way, the, the invitation today is not to go and read another book or listen to another sermon or download another podcast or try harder to be better. The invitation today is just to surrender to the love of God. Surrender to it. Just like a ranger in that, that picture, just to, to rest in the love of God.